Good evening. Much better. <laughs> Glad you decided to be here with us. Hopefully you've had a, a good day. I know it was nice weather. Hopefully you had an opportunity to spend time with friends, family, uh, whatever that opportunity may have been. I know it was a great day uh, for us to worship together, but also spend uh, special time with one another. And so what a great opportunity that is. And we'll continue our studies tonight as we think about what God has given to us. And uh, before, we do, before we do that, let's pray together. Lord our God, we come before you thanking you for the day. Not only for the time that we've had with our family and friends, but the opportunity that we have to worship you, knowing that you have taught us and you have guided us and you have set an example in our lives for how we are to live. We thank you for Jesus that came to this earth to live and to die, that we may live and have life eternal. We pray all this to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. What we're going to be discussing tonight is evidences for the resurrection. Now, what we're going to do is uh, we're going to build a case in order for us to understand how it is that Jesus was raised from the dead. Now, this is going to come from a couple of different perspectives and different ways that maybe you haven't considered before, maybe things that you've heard, and we're going to try and link them together in order to shore up our faith or maybe to have a more productive conversation with someone else, uh, whether it's to someone that we need to educate further to teach about the Word of God. Maybe we need to encourage a skeptic. Maybe we need to, to lift someone up, bring them a little bit closer to the cusp of truth that they may have a solid faith in God. And so we're going to talk about a few things tonight as we build a case for Jesus. Now, as you think about this argument as we, we start off, there's a lot of different directions we can go in in order to prove the existence of Jesus. Now, where a lot of people are going to fall out when it comes to understanding Jesus and his original purpose, uh, it's going to come out in theological matters, not necessarily uh, according to history. We can go back in history and we can prove that there was a man named Jesus that came from the Jews, that the Jews despised, one that died, and one that there's much controversy about. We can go back in history and we can look at certain evidences and we can see those things. Now, where other people may fall out is they say, okay, Jesus may have existed, but can you really prove that this man was the son of God? He made claims. He said all these things about himself. He said that he was the king, but can you really prove that's who he was? We can prove who he is, but what was he really at his very essence? As we begin to think about this and we build a case for Jesus, we have to understand some of those matters, that there are going to be things theologically, things concerning the mind of God, the nature of Jesus, the nature of God, that we're going to have to pinpoint down in Scripture. We need to understand this is our authority. As we consider a lot of different things through history, throughout time, through experience, we have to settle on the fact that the Word of God is our standard. Now, how do we derive to that? How we get to that is very important. As we consider the resurrection tonight, as we think about Jesus coming and walking on this earth, but also after his death, we need to shore up our faith. Now, where we need to start is we need to get a definition of understanding this miracle, understanding that something is unique about Jesus. At the very simplest foundation, a miracle is an interference with nature. If you're going to take a very simple definition, a miracle is an interference with nature. Think back on some of the miracles you can consider from the Word of God. When Jesus calmed a storm, now storms rise and they cease 
rapidly. We see that all the time, but it's a little different when it comes at the voice of a man. You know, there are people that, for whatever reason, receive their sight back. For whatever reason, they may be healed of a certain ailment. But it's a little different when it comes at the voice of a man or the touch of someone that says, I have the power to do these things. So we see in one respect that a miracle is an interference with nature. We understand that we die. Death is at the end of our lives. There is no one who lives an eternal life on this earth. An interference with that natural process would be someone being raised from the dead. So as we consider this miracle that Jesus was raised from the dead, we understand that's interference with nature. But what does nature actually teach us? It's been said that nature doesn't teach us necessarily about morals. You look into the natural processes of what we uh, see around us, and it may not teach us what morals really are. You see how the animal kingdom functions and operates, and you may have someone that comes in and says, you know, we are just an evolved person from what you see around nature. And so morals, they're subjective. Whatever you decide, whatever works for you in your certain situation, your culture, your society, whatever that is, you figure it out based on who you are. Now, there might be another part of us that says, you know, there's something built in us that we understand morals, but just the very outset of nature, it doesn't necessarily teach us what morals are, but it sets examples for us. And that's what we want to talk about. As we understand that a miracle is an interference with nature, we have to also understand two other things that we build a case for the greatest miracle that we can teach. One, we have to understand that nature is consistent. Storms rise and fall. People live and they die. The earth turns, the sun rises, and the sun sets. The earth goes on and on. There's a certain amount of energy. There's a certain amount of things that are built into nature, and it is consistent. It functions. If you're going to speak to a scientist, you're going to speak to a skeptic that doesn't necessarily agree with Scripture, you may come at it from a natural standpoint, and they'll say, you know what? The earth is what we've got. We're trying to figure it out with sciences. We're trying to get to the very heart of how do things operate? How do they function? Getting a better understanding of them. They will look at nature, and they'll say there's something consistent with it. Which is why a miracle is so powerful that it steps outside of the bounds of nature and does something completely unique. So on one side, we have to understand that nature is consistent. On the other side, we need to realize there is something outside of nature. There is something more beyond us that we are seeking for. Look back over the course of history and look at how many times people have sought after something higher. They have created gods, they have created beings, they have created understandings that are outside of what we see. Because we look at nature, we look at the things that we experience, and we have to think there is something more than what we see in front of us right now. There's got to be something more. And so people have begun to create these different ideologies, they have created these different gods and these different beings to give an illustration, to give an understanding for what we experience here. We saw a great example of that this morning as we, we look at God presenting himself to, uh, to those that have fled from Egypt. And they go outside of the, uh, the Mount Sinai and they create an image, a God. When the commandments of God do not create graven images. Man has been seeking something, seeking some kind of understanding because we realize there's something outside of nature. There's something more than what we experience right now. There's something more than us as human beings. And if we can understand the consistency of nature and that there's something more there, we can start to build a case for God. 
Sure, and you can feed into that something more outside of nature with a few other arguments. Maybe you can come at it from you look at nature itself. It has to have a creator. Look at the biological processes of the human body. Look at various things that have appeared in the earth, and you'll see that something had to put that into motion. Maybe you want to even come at it from the moral argument of looking at human beings have actually tried to decide what morals are because we understand there's got to be a standard. There's got to be some kind of rhythm to our lives that we can all match on. And so maybe you can take the, the moral argument that God or a created being, the a creator being, that he put something within us to, to understand how we are to function as human beings. You can look at these different arguments for there has to exist something outside of nature. Now, where we go from there is, is consider who or what is that being? You know, I, I think it's unique. If you look back over history, look at the Roman gods, the Greek gods, the Mesopotamian gods, the ancient ones uh, in the ancient Near East. You look at those different uh, theologies. One unique factor in many of them is an idea of a dying and rising God. You know, a skeptic will look at us as Christians. They say, okay, sure, you believe in this one true God, a monotheistic God, and you believe in Jesus that was the Christ, that he was the Son of God, and you believe in this resurrection, but he wasn't the first one that is claimed to be raised from the dead. There are other gods, there are other stories, there are other myths that, that come before Jesus that talks about a dying and rising God. This, this God that, that, for whatever reason, loses part of his divinity and, and, and he, he may go to Hades or he may go to this realm or that realm and he comes back and, and people see him. Jesus is just another one of those stories. It's just another myth. It's just a myth put on top of a, a physical person that was here. There's nothing really unique about him. When we think about that, let's use that as an argument. Why are there so many different stories and different religions revolved around dying and rising gods? Why is it that Jesus is not the first example of that? If you look back in those religions, what is one of the things uh, those gods are attached to? Nature. They are nature gods. Now, as we think about this dying and rising process, have we seen it before in nature? Some of you that uh, getting ready when April rolls around, if we can get all of the, the winter out of here, now that we're in April, you're considering planting. We understand by the natural processes of this earth the idea of dying and rising. You may look at it from two different vantage points, one from wheat or from corn. Look at some of these ancient religions, and you'll see that they are revolving around the harvest time. They find that there are certain crops, there are certain things that grow up, and they die, and what, is, uh, what comes from that death is then buried, and it is raised again. Look back on some of these ancient religions, Mithra, Dionysus, Set, Osiris, Look back on some of these ancient uh, religions, and you'll find them revolved around harvest. Okay, now what does that mean to us? I think what that means is that God, in His infinite wisdom and knowledge, put a precedent in nature in order for us 
to accept Jesus for who he is and what he's able to do. I want you to consider two verses. Let's go to John chapter 12. Something for you to hold in your mind as we look at this. But in John chapter 12, Jesus is having a conversation with his disciples. And starting in verse 20, this is what we see. It says, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. You find one little example in the teachings of Jesus, understanding this idea of dying and rising. Jesus is looking at nature and he's saying, you have already been taught a lesson. You have already been shown an example of what it means to die for a purpose and what it yields. Paul later on in his ministry, as he's writing to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in a chapter uh, that we'll return to later, a whole chapter dedicated to the resurrection of Jesus. One of the things that he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 42, he says, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It's sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. It's sown in natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it's not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are all those who are of the dust. And is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. This idea of dying and rising, being buried and turning into something new. Jesus and Paul both realized this, but we also see that it was set into nature and that there are people who created entire religions around harvest, this entire religion around something dying and coming back alive. It's almost like God has said, I can teach you if you will open up your eyes and see. If you'll look at the book of Job in a different context, as Job was seeking answers, why are things going so awry around me? What is happening in my life? One of the times towards the end of the book, God sits Job down and he says, stop, look, listen. And he begins to point out things of creation. He says, look at this animal, look at that. Who built it? Who created it? Who controls it? Not even man has that ability. Who put these things here? There's got to be something more. And at the end of multiple chapters of Job having his eyes opened up to the nature and creation around him, when you get to the end of the book of Job, Job steps back and he says, at one point I'd heard about God, but now I truly see that he is living and he is active. There is something that we can learn about nature, some kind of standard that God has put into place that we may consider what is out there? As you think about building a case for the resurrection, we need to understand that God is not another nature God. He is the God of nature, the creator. 
the sustainer, the controller, the one who puts all things in operation, and the one who holds it all together. He is the one that is over it. And he has told us, if you will open, look, see, listen, you can find. So first we set the standard of what does nature teach us? Does it guide us a little bit closer to understanding the resurrection of Jesus? But we can't just stop and look at nature by itself. We have to really consider the facts. Now, as you get closer to the story of Jesus and you start considering the the Bible, for those of us that hold a solid faith, we understand that this is the Word of God, divinely given by the Spirit of God, the mind of God that we may rely upon and understand its authority. To people outside of Christianity, this is just textual evidence for an existence of people. There's an argument called the minimal facts argument. And what it is, is how many facts can we actually come to about Jesus and his life that even skeptics will believe? Now, there's about half a dozen, uh, even 12 of you extended a little bit further. There's three that I want us to think about tonight that I think build a case for understanding the resurrection of Jesus. One is to understand that Jesus lived and was crucified. That's the first step. A skeptic will look back and say, yes, a man named Jesus did live. There are lots of things about his life. He, in fact, was crucified. We have even people outside of Christianity confirming this fact. We have Roman rulers that wrote about this. We have Jewish leaders that are attributed to crucifying him. We have them writing and telling us about Jesus. We can nail down the fact that Jesus did walk on this earth. To a skeptic, it is just a Jesus. But it's one of the minimal facts. It's one of the things that we can prove. The second fact, major fact that we can prove is not only did Jesus die, but his disciples truly believed that he had been raised from the dead. So let's say you take 12 men, 120 by 40 days later. Say you take this body of people, and they are all fully convinced that this Jesus was the Son of God. Are they just that deceived? Are they that gullible? Are they that easily led away? I think you find a little bit of an understanding if you were going to look in the book of Matthew. Towards the end of Matthew, Matthew 27, starting in verse uh, 62. This is one of the stories that we have revolving around uh, Jesus and his death. Listen to what Matthew records in Matthew 27, starting in verse 62. It says, The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter, speaking of Jesus, said, While he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now, there's other things you could look at in literature, but I think if you were going to consider the the Bible, even as a textbook, even as a piece of literature of this time, and look at what was so unique about the disciples, they believed that the person they were following wasn't going to remain in that grave. They were fully convinced of it. 
about 20 to 30 years later, they're still so convinced they will die for it. Now, it's one thing for somebody to follow hallucination. It's another thing for somebody to follow a lie. It's another thing for somebody to be gullible and be deceived. It's another thing for someone to be fully convinced that they're willing to die for it. And here we are, 2,000 years later, willing to die for the same story. Not only us gathered in this room, but thousands, millions of other people, hopefully, that have the same faith and understanding of us that we are willing to die for what we believe in. If we're willing to die for something, it's not going to be just a lie or deception or a hallucination brought on by a few people. It's going to be something that's real and actual and something that we can depend on and have true faith in. So as you look at the story of Jesus, as we build a case for his resurrection, we understand that there was a Jesus that did live and was died, that had died and was crucified. We understand that there are a group of disciples, a group of people that believe so much in it, they were willing to die for it. And the same story continues on. But it's not just common people. It's not just the, the easily deceived. It's not just the broken. But it's even great leaders. And one of the, the examples that even skeptics will come to understand is that even people like Paul, a Jew that was so well-versed in the Scriptures, still missed the goal of this dying and rising God. Until his eyes were opened. You take someone like Paul that was willing to kill in order to squash this rebellion, in order to squash uh, this idea of a God that was against the one true God, Yahweh. They were willing to destroy whoever stood in the way of what they thought was truth until they realized what truth was. And you have someone that flips a switch that goes from uh, being on the way and, uh, to kill Christians that on that same way, he changes and decides to be a follower. For something like that to happen, there's got to be some kind of full conviction. As I told you, we're going to rec uh, return back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and I want us to consider the first part of uh, Paul's argument in verse 1. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 1, listen to what he pins. It says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which of you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Of the grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Consider someone like Paul that goes from trying to squash a rebellion to being a follower of it. What does it take to have that big of a turnaround? 
There's got to be a conviction. There's got to be a buy-in. There's got to be an understanding of what's happening. As we consider these three main arguments, and there's many more that we could look at, it, I think it adds to the story in the case that Jesus is the resurrected God. The one that was spoken about from old, the one that we can even learn about through other processes of life. But what makes Jesus so unique in comparison to all these other myths, these other stories, what makes Jesus so unique is that he did it. It's not just a story. You know, down the line of all these things that we've talked about, we have a faith that comes out at the end that says, when this life is over, if I have fought the good fight, I will stand before God. As we consider these different evidences for the case of the resurrection of Jesus, the last one that I want to think about uh, tonight is the evidence that you have in your personal life. You haven't reached out and touched the Son of God. You haven't felt his side where the spear went in. You haven't touched his hands where the, the nails had gone in. You haven't heard his voice. You haven't seen his face. You haven't been in his presence. You haven't talked to him. You haven't communicated with him face to face. But you are sitting here because you believe that a man died and was buried and he was raised. If you don't believe that, if you don't have a full faith, are you willing to go to the furthest extent for it? I think about all the examples that have been set forth before us. All the people that were there that, that tell us, keep going, keep looking, keep understanding. Paul's charge for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58, as he concludes his argument for the resurrection he says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. You will be an evidence for the resurrection of Jesus when people see maybe the lifestyle that you used to live that was so full of sin, that was contrary to the nature of God, contrary to his word, that you take that life and you die to it. You bury it. You deny it. You hang yourself on the cross and you take up your cross and follow Jesus. If you will take that evidence in your life, people will see what you believe in. They will understand they don't have to see Jesus face to face because they can see you showing Jesus through you. As I think about all the different evidences in our life, one of them that comes to the front is what are we doing for the cause of Christ right now, where we are in everything that we do? What are you doing to take the gospel? What are we doing to take the Word of God into people's lives? You have to be steadfast, immovable, knowing that your labor is not in vain. Will you give evidence to the fact that you believe Jesus has been raised and is seating, is seat, uh, has seated at the right hand of God, knowing that when your life, your walk, your fight is over, you'll be welcomed into a kingdom that he died for. Do you believe what Jesus has done? If there's any way that we can help you tonight, if you've been overcome, if you've